Hey everybody, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James, and with me today, I have Jess and Hugh from the Somex team. Jess, Hugh, welcome. How are you guys doing? Hey, very good, thank you. Hi, James. Yeah, very good, thanks. Looking forward to getting into some stories. Uh, this week's Pigeon Hue, absolutely hilarious. Um, I'm going to start by saying we are going to talk about pair therapeutics in this podcast. Um, and obviously with them uh, doing not so well, I thought you'd actually got through the newsletter without making the obvious joke, but then followed the old asterisk down to the bottom of the newsletter. And lo and behold, there it was. Things have gone pear shaped. Um, so just want to get that out the way so that we don't have to dwell on it. But thank you for putting the joke in. Uh, <laughs> definitely made me laugh. Um, but yeah, we've got that to talk about. We've got uh, OpenAI and Microsoft to talk about. We've got some other stuff as well. So yeah, looking forward to a good one. Let's get into it. The first story that we're going to talk about this week, uh, OpenAI, uh, I'm sure as everyone has heard if you've unless you've been obviously living under a rock the creators of chat gpt and gpt4 more recently well this news has come out and this is in cnbc so OpenAI, it's an open powered app from microsoft and what it's going to do it's going to instantly transcribe patient notes during doctor visits. So Microsoft and its Nuance Communications subsidiary have announced Dragon Ambient Experience, DAX Express for short. Um, Very cool immediately. Uh, A clinical notes application for healthcare workers that is powered by AI. Its aim is to help reduce clinicians' administrative burden by automatically generating a draft of clinical notes after a patient visit and it's powered by this combination of ambient AI, which forms insights from all this unstructured data, like conversations between humans and OpenAI's newest model, GPT-4. So I'll kick off with this one because this, this is incredibly exciting for me. Because what I've said, I think, on this podcast and my other podcast so often is just how burdensome documentation is for clinicians. It sucks. It is such a huge part of our job that it takes up, I mean, half of the job. I mean, whenever you're having a consultation with a patient, you're doing your best to write notes down at that point. But even thinking about something like A&E, where we're constantly seeing patients, you're actually not constantly seeing patients because however much time you've spent with the patient, you're already thinking in your head, I've got to write all this stuff up. And you've got to be present with a patient. There's a real human factors thing about if you're going to get the most amount of information from someone, especially where there is such nuance and detail um, as discerning any mental health problems or reading between the lines, you've got to be really there with the patient in the room. And I think one of the problems is that you might be trying to document at that time. Even if you think about general practice, you know, if you've got a GP and you're in a GP appointment, they're facing the computer, they're they're typing as you're speaking. It makes it all very impersonal and it removes a huge part of healthcare. Not only that, then there's the time that goes into the documentation after a consultation or after the patient's left the room or after they've been moved on if you're in A&E. And so 
I know that this has been tried before and, and particularly in dentistry, actually, there's been a couple of these things pop up like Kuroku and a, a couple of others where it seems a bit more structured in, in something like dentistry and perhaps a bit easier to do. The fact that this builds in GPT-4 and other bits and bobs to create this gives me like this huge sense of relief and actually optimism that they're actually going to crack this problem. Previously, I've been, I suppose, underwhelmed by anything that, that may have been trying to do it in healthcare. Maybe that's justified. Maybe that's not. I've never really felt that I've never trusted, I guess, that the problem could be solved by any technology. But since GPT-4 and obviously things that we use for it internally at Somex and seeing the power of it, especially GPT-4 actually and its ability to problem solve, I think taking unstructured data like a conversation between two humans and then structuring it in a way that could be relevant and appropriate and correct in healthcare, I think is possible. And obviously this is going to require a heck of a lot of iteration and testing and all sorts before this actually hits the market en masse. But the fact that this is in development and is, is aiming to do all these different things is just so relieving for me at a time where we've got this huge workforce crisis. We're trying to get more with less in healthcare, but this could really improve things and in a real tangible way. We could genuinely see more patients. We could genuinely do more if we haven't got the burden of documentation or at least to halve the burden of documentation or to 75% reduce the burden of documentation. Do anything to reduce the burden of documentation would be fabulous for all clinicians. And so I am super excited by this. I think it is going to be a wonderful thing for thing to follow. Um, and also just a, 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 something to add about what Microsoft have managed to do with their brand and what they're managing to do in healthcare. I think it's it's impressive watching what they're doing. The, the acquisition of, of Nuance, which they got for 16 billion back in 2021. Obviously what they're now doing with OpenAI, integrating the two, developing DAX Express, Dragon, whatever they're calling it. Like, I think this is super interesting. And Microsoft are going to be a bit of a force to be reckoned with in healthcare. Yeah, exciting all around for me. I don't know if you and Jess have got anything to add. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's worth noting that, yeah, it will be a while before we see this used generally. I think they said that it's in the private trial phase at the moment, and this is in the US. Um, but I just think it's a great example of letting AI do what AI is good at, is like automated tasks and the stuff that just takes and then giving taking the cognitive load off the clinician so that they can do the human parts of the job which they're good at which is interacting with the patients listening to the patients and having that face-to-face picking up on the non-verbal cues because I mean I think everyone's experience being in their 10-minute GP appointment and the GP just being staring at their computer and typing away the whole time and you just feel like you're kind of talking into the void of it I think everyone's probably wished that the GP would just like turn and face them and have a proper conversation with them. It looks like we're one step closer to be achieving that. So very optimistic. Yeah, I won't say anything more on the, on the patient experience and the clinician experience thing because uh, you've, you've both covered <laughs> it. But, you know, just shout out. This, this is one of those game-changing, you know, market shifts, isn't it? I don't, I don't know whether this is strategic from Microsoft or whether it's, you know, a, a, a lucky win that they acquired Nuance and then OpenAI really was this giant leap forward and they're just, you know, major partners with it. But, you know, you put one thing you bought together and one, another thing that you own a 50% stake in and, and you have probably owned the market for the foreseeable once it, you know, once it proves itself. It is definitely exciting 
on a number of levels. Looking forward to watching it. All right, our second story today. Uh, we couldn't avoid talking about this, really. Pair Therapeutics files for bankruptcy. The prescription digital therapeutics company is pursuing a sale of the business or its assets. This is a heck of a story. And for those that don't know, uh, Maggie Donovan, by the way, has written a fantastic blog on this, which I'm referring to here, which we're going to include in the Pigeon newsletter as well. But Pair Therapeutics has been considered by many to be this trailblazer or pioneer in the digital therapeutics community. And what they offer is FDA-cleared prescription digital therapeutics for substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, and insomnia. And they've been on the public markets since late 2021. And so it's it's been this kind of behemoth company that everyone sort of looked at as this amazing digital therapeutics company that's managed to secure reimbursement, get all this adoption, get it right. They had this huge pipeline of different products to cover digital therapeutics for loads of different things. But ultimately, what's happened is their stock price has declined, and ultimately, they're far for bankruptcy. They, well, it says here, in the third quarter of 2022, uh, they reported a net loss of nearly $31 million and revenue of just 4.1. And there are a few things that have kind of gone into this, which Maggie's written in this blog and analyzed. And she puts it down to, I guess, two main things, which is that evidence does not equal reimbursement or adoption. That's the first thing. And that they built too large a pipeline of products before proving commercial viability. So I guess what that means is that the commercial viability wasn't proven, i.e. you look at their numbers, they're spending loads, they're not making loads. And so they just haven't quite proved or anywhere near according to those numbers, but they haven't proved that they can become profitable. They haven't bec- they haven't proved that they can get loads of revenue for these digital therapeutics whilst keeping their costs underneath what they make. And so without proving that though, they've said, oh, we're going to do the same thing in over 50 other products. So 50 other digital therapeutics they had planned without proving a profitable model in the therapeutics that they actually had produced. And what's gone into this is this concept of evidence does not equal reimbursement or adoption. So whilst the digital therapeutics that they had created were evidence-based, i.e. it was proven clinically, I'm assuming, several large RCTs uh, mentioned here, that clinically it uh, it was proven that if these digital therapeutics were used, then there would be a good clinical outcome and that would be ROI positive from a financial perspective, I imagine, with the business model that they had. But sadly, a couple of things went wrong in that, for example, 31,000 prescriptions were written for Pairs products. So basically, what that means is people went to their physician and the physician prescribed a digital therapeutic rather than a medication, which is great. 31,000 times it was prescribed, but only 58% of those prescriptions were actually filed, which means that only 58% of those people actually went ahead and used that digital therapeutic. And so there's clearly a couple of things going on. There's clearly, uh, I guess, an awareness for clinicians that they can prescribe. That's going to up the number of times 
it will be prescribed. But then it needs to be used and reimbursed in order to generate revenue for the company. So the other part is, I suppose, awareness that patients are going to get benefit from that digital therapeutic to make them actually go and file the prescription, but also then an adherence point. So you if adherence isn't good enough, you're not going to get repeat prescriptions, I guess, which is where you're going to get repeat revenue, recurring revenue, which is going to solidify the business model. So I think that's my understanding of it, is that those are the things that went wrong. And Maggie's done me a huge favor here of uh, laying that out, which I've basically regurgitated to credit to her for that analysis. But the thing I want to, I guess, ask you guys, Hugh and Jess, is that your understanding of this and is the, what do you think about this in terms of like a signal for the market? Like so many digital therapeutics companies, I imagine, looked up to pair therapeutics as like, well, they've IPO'd. There's hope for us here. We can grow. We can scale. We can be used. Is this a really bad signal for the market or is there is there a silver lining here? So I can only really speak about this from a, from a UK perspective, but I think it's... I think there's a couple of concerns here. Obviously, I think some of the adherence points need to be addressed, which is that, you know, do they consider sort of health inequalities? Do they consider um, digital inequalities? And you know, if, if your physician is prescribing um, something like this, um, can you be sure about adherence and how can you consider individual cases? So the, there is that um, question from the adherence point of view. Um, I think digital therapeutics generally I, I think this is a bit concerning for the market. You know, this is one of the this is one of the pioneers, but I don't think it should be taken as a sign that the market isn't necessarily ready. Um, I think there are, you know, given that they had such a strong evidence base in the first place, mm. um, and still couldn't, you know, achieve what they wanted to. That is a bit of a worry. If you look at the digital therapeutics market in the UK, for example, you know, we only have one approved for use on the NHS here. Um, and you know, in a recent nice um, early value assessment of digital therapeutics technologies for depression, you know, most of them, most of the companies involved couldn't provide you know, a shred of evidence mm. um, for their use. So evidence clearly isn't the point. These are, you know, valuable to you know, it is possible to generate useful evidence that will help shift the shift the market i think you know what pair shows is that there's a real question of how long that'll take um mm. and you know that there are two aspects in terms of the financial point which is you know can you can you you know prove that your evidence on the roi basis and then there's the question of licensing you know how much do does a course of this treatment cost which for pair was 1300 for three months so if you can't persuade the the typical payers then you're not going to spend thirteen hundred dollars for three months if you're if you've been prescribed it. You'll look at that and go, "Yeah, I don't have that." There's a few things to learn from this, but I, I wouldn't take this as a a sign that digital therapeutics cannot have their impact. Just that it seems like Pear went about it the wrong way, and you know it was more a business model problem than a product problem. Yeah, I think it's important to recognise that even though things have gone pear shaped for Pear. You had to you had to go there, Jess, didn't you? Yeah. You had to you had to do it. <laughs> someone someone had to say it. Um, but yeah, this doesn't like um negate the work that they did and have done in like laying the foundations for digital therapeutics and like 
paving the paving the way for other companies to come and try and go further than they went um, and have more success. But um, yeah, I mean, digital therapy is going to become part of Sanicare and how would have played a major part in this. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point. It, it's sort of that first mover disadvantage, isn't it? That actually yeah. when you are trailblazing or laying a path or however you want to describe it, when you are doing that, you are having to spend more resource on doing things that the people behind you no longer have to do. They made the mistakes that other people are going to learn from. Well, that, and also if you think about something, I guess what my mind goes to is like, so regulators have had to catch up behind them, right? I think that's fair to say, at least in, at least in part. And so their regulatory journey will have taken more time Therefore, it would have been more expensive. They would have had to spend more specific resource on lobbying and reports and generating things that might not need to be generated in in future because the, the, the system is more efficient. So on a very practical level, they're spending more time and resource doing things that uh, the, the people behind won't have to do. And so, yeah, it, it's, 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 a, it's a good point that whilst obviously sucks – it's sort of that first mover disadvantage, I guess, of having to do all of that stuff. And, you know, dare I mention Babylon in that as well? Like, is is that going a similar direction? Is that a similar story to tell? You know, I can remember talking about Babylon, what, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, talking about regulation then and, and what they seem to be doing, which was just so brand new and regulators were having to catch it behind and and they were having to obviously be involved in so many conversations that were so brand new and probably quite tiresome and repetitive and all those things so lots of resource for them too was was heating up in that so i I, is this something we're seeing there too i don't know but yeah i i totally get it and actually the path is now paved there are definitely lessons that have been learned across regulation and other bits and bobs that will definitely help digital therapeutics in future and they can now put the effort on the business model side of things they can put the effort on adherence adoption the things that we now know are important um and so yeah it's it's never good i think to to uh see and hear of of big companies that were held up as you know almost famous cross sector if they're famous across sectors and then they go down it's sort of like a, an l for health tech isn't it but i think if we can learn from it and the market can learn from it the the startups in future can learn from it i think it obviously can be turned into a win and they've done some obviously great work in paving the way for that so kudos to them So our next story uh, moves on quite nicely from there. Uh, obviously, revenue is a big problem for Pair, looking at their numbers, Pair Therapeutics. This one is from Med City News. It's called Four Lessons Health Tech Companies Should Know to Reach $100 Million ARR. So this, this article is based on a study from Bessemer Venture Partners, and they've analyzed over 100 VC-backed healthcare companies to determine the best strategies to scale to $100 million in annual recurring revenue. So this report, what it's done, it's laid out a few of the main lessons that health tech companies should know, things like the importance of nurturing relationships with early customers, making sure efficiency metrics are paid close attention to, that kind of thing. So... I thought what we could do is just have a look at these and see what we think. 
So first one, remember that innovation takes time. So uh, it takes about 10 to 11 years to reach $100 million ARR, this report says, which is three to four years longer than traditional cloud companies. And I think that is a really important point when you consider who this report might be for. And so 10 to 11 years, that's a really interesting, well, it's just a really interesting length of time when you consider the common lifetime of a fund, because a VC fund commonly will be a 10-year fund. So unless you're investing on day one, you might need to have a look at how long you're thinking to run your fund for and or to make your fund evergreen. And for companies, for startups themselves, you might need to have a look, in, if you're in the health tech space, at how long your VC fund is that you're going for investment from. Because if they are a 10-year fund and it's already year two or year three, then actually you're going to be under pressure to reach that level of revenue in less time than the average that it takes to get there. So you're going to be under a heck of a lot of pressure at your board meetings because they're going to be wanting you to get to that revenue to get the billion dollar exit in less time than they've even got. And so this is actually an advocate for me of looking at how long the fund cycle is um, or where they are in the fund cycle and how long their fund is actually uh, around for. Because again, huge advocate for going to evergreen funds here or additional forms of capital because the VC model needs to cash in and cash out often within 10 years. So definitely worth looking at that. I don't know, guys, any other thoughts on that one? Um, I mean, it's interesting that this is reports come from Bessemer Venture Partners. So it'd be interesting to see whether they have um, adapted the way that they're funding or working with health tech startups to reflect their own learnings that they published it. Yeah, definitely, Jess. And also, um, it says here, so Emily Melton, the managing partner at Threshold Ventures, which is one of the funds that uh, Livel C built this report with, uh, companies shouldn't focus solely on revenue, but building quality of revenue and figuring out the real leverage in the model where you can actually drive those better outcomes at lower cost and increase access. Not entirely sure I know what quality revenue means with that definition, but it just sounds like... Uh, lots of money. <laughs> so plenty of revenue and more of it uh, is what they should be going for. But the point being, remembering it takes time. And I think that's an important message. And for startups, have a look at how long the fund is and have a look at where they are in that cycle before you grab investment so that you know the expectations on you. Um, second one here, know your margins. Um, so it says, to in, in order to grow gross margins, which are incredibly important, uh, the report recommended that health tech companies should focus on three areas, charging a higher service price over time by demonstrating strong clinical outcomes and ROI for customers, leveraging technology that helps clinicians provide better care, which I think is interesting, um, and increasing the number of patients per provider over time. So making that product more efficient over time. So I think that's just really good first principle thinking for, for numbers one and three here, that over time charge a higher price because what you do should be getting better, valuable for any business, that message, and increasing the number of patients per provider over time. So just uh, the way I'm reading that is just make the product better over time. I think the second one, 
uh, and more efficient over time. I think the second one is interesting. So leveraging technology that helps clinicians provide better care, let's say as well as uh, omni-channel member experiences. I'm not too sure what that bit means, but leveraging technology that helps clinicians provide better care. Obviously, MedCity News, I believe, is US-based. Um, and I think in the US market, there is this greater focus on increasing quality of care, which I actually do like. And I know that their model is very commercial and we don't like it because we like a public sector health system. But in the, in the UK, we're, we're constantly talking about cheaper and lower costs and more efficient and all that sort of things. I like this because they're saying that in order to grow revenues, it needs to provide better care. And I, and I know that's going to be based on US models and obviously all those caveats that I just mentioned. But I, 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 I don't know. I get disheartened a lot because we're constantly talking about dropping costs. And I don't know if we talk enough about actually providing better care. And it's, and it's hard in, I guess, UK healthcare and health tech in the UK because you need to provide the same quality for lower costs or higher quality at lower costs. And of the two, same quality at lower costs is easier. And you demonstrate that cost saving and you're likely to get purchased because at the end of the day, that's what's going to um, move the needle and really demonstrate ROI. And if you can get those cash savings in year one, even better. But if you can get them in year three, you're probably going to be okay. But yeah, I like the fact that it focuses on better care as well. And I'm glad that's attached to large revenues. And I hope that's a message that comes down because I'd love to have that narrative a bit more in the UK. Anything else to say on that one, guys? Just that I guess it all comes down to what you define better care as as well. Yeah. You know, in the short term, you know, better care is, it, as, as you say, it's, you know, cost is far more important than, you know, providing better. In the long term, better care could mean preventative. It could mean, you know, more, you know, more mm. valuable to, you know, care in a way that actually improves health outcomes and therefore saves costs. In the in the long term, so I think there really is, if we can get out of the short term thinking point of view, an opportunity to improve better care and reduce costs. Mm. Yes, and dare I say it, if it weren't the political football, it was perhaps we'd think longer than five year political cycles. But let's perhaps not get into that. So yeah, the third thing they mention is uh, prioritizing customer relationships. So they say that it's imperative for health tech companies to establish and expand strong relationships with early customers. Uh, and specifically, this can be seen in the net dollar revenue retention values across the digital health sector. So the report has encouraged health tech companies to invest early in measuring both clinical and financial ROI, as these measurements will help them convince customers to stick around and scale their partnerships. So Really interesting that. So in order to prioritize that relationship, not only is that, I suppose, the um, the softer skill of relationship building, but actually they've attributed that to measuring clinical and financial ROI, both, again, focus on the clinical value as well as the financial value. Love that. Because those two things together are going to convince people to stick around and scale their partnerships. I think that is a wonderful message. I really, really like that. I'd be super interested to look into actually what they have. In fact, I will definitely dig into this full report because I, I want to see exactly what they define as the metrics that they're looking at for clinical and financial ROI. I imagine that for obviously different companies, it's going to be different clinically, but the financial ROI and how they're calculating that and the story that they're telling through the numbers to get there, I think it'd be incredibly interesting. And finally, 
don't forget how important efficiency is. There are some important metrics tied to efficiency that health tech companies need to keep, this article says, uh, or sorry, to keep especially close tabs on, uh, this report has suggested. So one is the business cash efficiency score, which Bessemer said should be measured as the ratio between net new ARR per each dollar the company burns. I'm not going to try and wrap my head around that. Another important metric is ARR per full-time employee which indicates how each additional hire or existing employee contributes to the company's top line. I can wrap my head around the second one because that is something that I actually track here at Somex as well. I think that is a very important metric um, because what you don't want to do is swell your business with lots of employees and then get less and less efficient over time. Um, you want to make sure that everyone that you bring in is giving the business ROI because that is how you maintain your profit margin. But yeah, I think super interesting report. This super, I'm definitely going to dig into the full thing, but a great article from Red City News that looked at that. Anything else you guys want to mention or chat about or add? Just to uh, to highlight that there's actually one lesson five um, buried in the original report. Um, which is, is, is kind of good news for every health tech startup, which is that, you know, um, Bessemer's put together this list of benchmarks for how you can judge your performance, and they do not expect you to be perfect on each one. No VC will expect you to be absolutely 100% there on every metric. Um, so don't let these lessons put you off if you haven't nailed um, each and every one of them to the highest standard. I think that's a really good point, you, and obviously a point that they've made, that yeah, I think you can you can end up in all sorts of paralysis if you're in the planning stage expecting to be perfect in one domain, less five or less all of them, <laughs> however you define that. Um, I think yeah, if you're a founder, if you're a CEO, if you're C-suite, if you're just working at a startup and you're you know, held by these metrics and trying to achieve things for you and your company, then give yourself a break. Um, absolutely, you want to be hitting as many of these as possible. But with the market where it is and with tech companies doing what they're doing and all the rest of it, I think we can all be afforded to give ourselves a bit of a break at the minute and not hold ourselves to such a high regard. That said, if you're looking for funding and you're in that part of the cycle, you know exactly what you should be doing. And so you absolutely want to be getting as close to those things as possible. And so, um, yeah, I think it's really good practical information, this actually, uh, and a really good article from Med City News. Thanks, everybody. It's been an interesting one. We almost got through it without making the pear-shaped joke, but Jess, uh, thank you for doing so. I thought I'd caveated it at the start, but... Uh, Thank you. We can edit it out, don't we? <laughs> uh, chances are Jared's probably going to leave this in. So thank you, Jared. Uh, and thank you, our listeners as well. Yeah, it's been super interesting. Uh, you can grab the full newsletter and all of the links to all those stories at www.healthtechpigeon.com. And yeah, tune in next week to hear more health tech news and analysis. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>